Hi, and welcome back to But Where Are You From? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian network. I'm your host, Viv Yao, and with me is Amy Fung. How are you doing? How are you doing? Um, yeah, not too bad. Buzzing, buzzing from the buzzing. episode that we just recorded with the fantastic oh. Nova Reed. Reed, anti racist activist, TED speaker podcast host and author of The Good Ally, which debuted last year. Wow. I I actually can't wrap my head around the fact that we just spoke with her and we managed to get her on. Yeah, yeah. It was such a good conversation and I was hanging on every word. I was thinking this is almost like a one-to-one with someone who knows their stuff, knows so much and is giving yeah. us knowledge. Like it was really cool. What a privilege to have a one-to-one with Nova Reed. <laughs> I know. Getting to know her as well, because I think sometimes we, you know, we see educators and um, anti-racism activists just for their work, and we see them in that way, and it's really important work, but it's so important to get to know them as people and understand that, you know, they are complex and that they have stuff going on, they have... Um, pots to make paint oh you'll find out more about that later <laughs> and um you know just stuff going on it's just really nice yeah I loved how she described herself as a cheeky cat yeah I think I would describe myself as a lazy panda Ooh, I would describe myself as a sweaty panting doggy <laughs> it's so warm now I was boiling just <laughs> I was like, I want to take my bra off, but <laughs> I'm under under boob sweat. Yeah, I know because Nova was wearing a jumper, and I was like, she must be sweltering right now. But yeah. she kept her cool. Um, and for those who haven't heard of Nova Reed before, um, I came across her, I think, during 2020, probably, and then subsequently read her book, The Good Ally, which has has almost been my handbook every time like I think about certain like racial theory I go back to her book a lot because uh, I find it really useful um and she is just so incredible I can't I can't quite describe her apart from she's just amazing um so we came across her through reading her book and her work on Instagram and then weirdly enough I heard I went to a networking event and I heard um that she did a talk at a an agency in Manchester as well and I was like oh nice okay cool and then I tweeted about her audiobook and then she um retweeted it or put it on her Instagram and I used that as an in to get in with her team to try to like get get her on the podcast um good at that you're so good at that the slick slide (laughs) the old emails or dms and um yeah I think it's really good that also there's a UK specific discourse around that because I think often we look to the US for educators and you know the work that they do but it's very different in the UK it's a different kind of dynamic so it's good to sort of follow someone and learn from the work of someone who is more specific to where we live because it's slightly Mm. different yeah yeah I agree and I learned so much from just listening to her like the we talked about inter-community well, racism and she how she calls it online, not online hate, how she calls it um Is it intercultural hate? hate intercultural. intercultural hate. Mm. Um, and she calls it hate purposefully because 
racism by its definition includes power and there isn't that history between uh, different community cultural communities and the way she explained it and how like it all still panders to white supremacy just completely clicked because I, I used to have like I used to ask myself really stupid questions before I started learning about anti-racism I used to think like can a black person be racist to a Chinese person and I'd be really confused and I'd be going around my head for ages thinking well can you because you're you're both people of color but then you know obviously learned since then that like it does exist but you know it's amazing how she put a name to it mm, mm, you know? it was something where like okay I have learned something now I'm gonna take that away and I have a better term for it something that's more relevant um than the term you know just racism between minoritized mm-hmm. communities like it's very specific and, and very intentional and yeah just just amazing really mm, how do you feel now I feel good. Um, I got the munchies because it's just before dinner time, and um, I think I'm I'm gonna have that thing where I'll be buzzing on this for a while. I'm gonna be thinking about it and sort of pinching myself, going, "Had a chat with Nova Reed." Okay, mm. that happened. It was for real. <laughs> I really hope when I edit this back, I don't cringe at the stuff that I say because you know I still feel like very unconfident when I talk about anti-racism. Um, and speaking with an anti-racist activist is, you know not easy to do but she said some amazing things about the fact that no one is perfect we're all learning on this journey and how she held her hands up and said I will still say or do things that are maybe problematic to other communities and it's how you learn from that and it's ultimately about being a caring compassionate person who wants to listen to people who you know say for example you've hurt communities outside of your own like if they're telling you that they're hurting then listen at the end of the day and you know she she's you can tell just like how far along she is on her anti-racism journey where she doesn't try to uphold perfectionism and like is aware that language changes so much and you know she talked about her friend Filipina friend identifying as yellow and how she held space for that and something that we've talked about before in terms of that terminology um you know who 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 is anyone to police that kind of language if you choose to identify in that way I'm really going off on a tangent I think it's because I'm hungry (laughs) both got the munchies well stay tuned everyone listen to this really brilliant episode of Nova and uh, let us know what you think drop us a note in uh, social media or send us an email or tweet us on Twitter let us know your thoughts we'd love to continue the conversation and thank you so much Oh, Nova's here. Okay. Shall I let her in? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hi. Hi, Nova. We heard you go, hmm. I can't <laughs> hear you. So let me come out and come back in again. <laughs> hmm. Oh, this is kind of exciting. I'm like, I know. No, like, she's so respected. So it's a bit like, it yeah. Is- it's a big thing. Okay, I'm not going to get in there. Don't fucking get me all nervous beforehand. I know, sorry. It just got <laughs> real when I saw her. It just got real. No, and and the fact that, like, I, what I find really weird is that we can now, we have access to, like, people that, you know, when you used to read books, you never thought you'd get in touch with the author. And now, like, we are able to just have dialogue with them. It's really weird, isn't it? It's like, I don't know. I'm going to be like, spoken over read. <laughs> today like never read and almost told my therapist today then I was like no this is not relevant <laughs> <laughs> it is it is it's, it's a like, big deal it is <laughs>
cool. I don't know. It's just, it's been like, it's not even like recent where I've just, just found her account. It's like, mm. oh, it's been, you know, I was one of those Black Square followers. So yeah. everyone's <laughs> doing the like, I'm listening and learning, like, you know. Mm. Black yeah. Square followers. Yeah, I know. Same. And like, I just heard her name again and again. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this is really cool. What's that? Oh, that's your mic. I thought it was oh, yeah. moving on its own then. Oh, it's quite distracting. Okay, I'm going to let her in again. Okay. Oh, oh she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> she's enough. She's yeah. not it. <laughs> just took one look at us and was like, no. I love you that you've still got your decorations up. Yeah, because apparently you're not going to take those down. You're meant to keep them on all year, apparently. Really? I don't know. I, I don't know why I heard that, but... Okay. And I, I, that's been there since 2020. <laughs> and that's that's Carly's print. I'm going to try and get that more in frame. It shows who I am. It's a bit of you. Oh, I've got a bathroom in the background. That's nice. Nice, nice. I'm <laughs> human. I'm just a human just a human who poos a human who poos all the time all the time (laughs) (laughs) okay so I added a couple more like I feel like my questions are really long what do you mean like you give a bit like yeah but I guess we I guess you can't you can't really ask simple questions for stuff like this it's always context isn't there Mm, exactly you can't just be like bish bash bosh so what do you think about racism then (laughs) Do you like it? Yeah, do you like it? Is it fun yeah. talking to white people? <laughs> uh. Hello, I'm lucky. Hello. Hi, Hi Nova. Nova. Hello. We were just joking and saying Nova took one look at us and thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm doing it off. <laughs> no, thank you. No sense. <laughs> we were just kind of like, um, fangirling behind the scenes and just saying how weird it is that like we the authors that we read now were able to actually like speak with them I I found it really weird and this is not what we do as a job like our day jobs are completely different to what we do at BC so it's just really cool to be able to speak with you oh well we just we're just we're just other humans so yeah I, <laughs> I, I, I think it was um uh Vivian, it was your your tweet that you shared with me that yes. made me remember and I thought I'd yeah I'd really love to love to connect with you so oh yay oh well I'm glad I used that as a hook because I was like how can I <laughs> somehow get in touch with Nova's team um so yeah I'm, I'm really glad and also just you know you're doing really important work <laughs> uh, so yeah I was thinking shall we jump right in and start recording what do you think yes yeah. We're already recording. Have we done our intros yet, though, Amy? I was no. like, who we are? Like, who the hell <laughs> no, we, we are? Haven't. No, yeah. We wanted, because we were thinking in your podcast, Nova, you talk about who you are outside of your work. And so we we're thinking, oh, well, now that we, well, we want to know what you do. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you just want to, do you want me to start with that? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah, yeah Nova, please let us know what it is that you do um, outside of the work, work sphere. This is um this is a big question because you know my work is so much rooted in racial justice, particularly tackling anti-blackness and anti-racism. Um, I'm also a black woman, so sometimes it's really difficult to separate my identity from the work that I'm doing because it's so 
intertwined and the work that I'm doing is as a result of you know navigating a, a, a navigating a landscape that's institutionally racist so it, it's actually really difficult for me sometimes to separate so who am I when I'm not embroiled in in conversations around racial trauma um I am very cheeky <laughs> I am mischievous and playful I am an auntie I'm a wife to a very uh, cheeky husband um <laughs> I I'm human I care deeply about people very empathetic and compassionate um also red-blooded <laughs> my husband would say very passionate um I love beach walks I love being by the sea um yeah I love I love I love conversations that nourish and are human and are expansive and live music uh yeah I like eating lots of food <laughs> Um, have a lot in common then over yes food is my love language food and music are love languages for me so that's a snippet oh I love that and yeah while we're on this vibe how about you Viv can you tell us a bit about you what are you besides changing the world (laughs) I mean no one has ever asked me that so it's Mm. a really difficult question to even begin to answer but thank you Nova for paving the way there because it's given me some ideas um I am a I love to laugh I love laughing all the time I'm a big napper I believe rest is resistant so I love to incorporate naps into my day um I'm a twin as well you are yeah comes with all sorts of complications uh, that I've discussed with my therapist as of late <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love food as well. Um, in fact, it probably makes up most of like what I do outside of um, day job and be seen job is finding new places to eat and cooking good food. Yeah. Um, I'm a daughter. I am someone who enjoys pretty things. I have a bright pink couch in my oh. living room, which I like. Um, and yeah, I'd say that's that's me. That's really difficult, really, really tricky. It's, it's, good, it's good for us to stretch and do that a bit more often because we're not our work. We, we, we tie mm. our identity up with our work um, and we're not. We're more than that. So, yeah, it's a good exercise. <laughs> Amy, we're batting it to you now. Yeah. You've had the most time to think about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to let you down badly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would say I'm a work in progress. And um, I'd say I'm constantly discovering things about my complexity that I didn't realize was there. And that's through the people I've met. That hasn't been something I've done on my own. I'm not an island. I've definitely felt like the more people I meet and the more places I go, the more I realize that things that I've gone through have affected me more than I have realized. So in an abstract way, that's me. Um, In other ways, I am a daughter as well. I'm a sister. I'm a mother to a very mischievous four-year-old and i love um food as well art and design i love discovery i love people as well um i really love learning stories i remember way before be seen i had an idea of you know i want i want a platform where i can just interview people and ask them about their histories and their journeys because i think 
we only see people as one dimensional, but we don't realize that they're, as, you know, um, an amalgamum of a journey. And I think, yeah, I, I think I, I don't know what I'm going for. I don't know why I'm reaching to my final destination. All I know is that I'm, I'm moving. So yeah, that is my very abstract, complicated answer. I loved it. <laughs> Me too. I love it. We have like an inside joke with, well, Amy, I've observed with Amy that the way she speaks is like poetry. Like it's so beautiful the way Amy puts together like all these abstract concepts and the way she speaks. Oh yeah, I forgot I'm a poet as well. (laughs) well, Are you really? I mean, I think you are. I think it's untapped. (laughs) Maybe I should change careers. Very lyrical, it's lovely. No. Uh, well, thank you so much to Nova Reed, the amazing, the incredible Nova Reed for coming on to our podcast. We're so honoured. And um, yeah, of course, I am your host, Amy Fung, and this is my co-host, please. I'm Viviao. Viviao. And we are just so honoured, like I said, to have Nova Reed on with us. Um, so as our podcast is suitably titled, But Where Are You mm-hmm. From? We would love to ask you this question too. We obviously recognise that it is often used as a microaggression to sort of say very subtly in other words, uh, I don't think you're from around here. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we want to ask you, Nova, but where are you from? Yeah, you know, I hate this question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, uh, and you know, I speak about this in my TED talk and why, you know, you can tell the difference between somebody asking you that question because they're interested to know where you're located versus wanting to interrogate your ancestry and to ask why you're, you're black or brown and why you're in this place. So you're somehow out of place, um, why you're other basically. Um, and I was thinking about how I would answer this question um, because the the answer is not straightforward for me. I've got lineage lost to colonization. Mm. So my very honest answer is Britain via Jamaica, via Nigeria, via Sierra Leone, via North Kenya, via Scandinavia, via France, via Eastern European, via Mesoamerican, Indigenous Mesoamerican and Papuan. Wow. Imagine if you said that to someone on the street who asked you that. I might. I might. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's a big question for me. Mm. Mm. It can bring up a lot of things, because often when someone asks me that question, I want to say to them, do you want the long or the short answer? Do you know what you're getting yourself mm. into when you ask that? Because it's well, not as simple as you like. No, and, and, and sometimes I'm like, what, what is it that you're asking me? If you're asking me why I'm black or why I speak the Queen's English, then I'll give you a very different answer to, mm. you know, where do you live? Where are you located? That's very different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's very, it's so coded, isn't it? That language. Um, and especially, I think, you know, I still experience it at the age of 31, where I can tell that people see me as the perpetual foreigner, you know, in the way that they interact with me and like are surprised with the fact that I can speak English in this day and age, you know, it is so, so, so coded. Um, So it's a very heavy question for us to start off with. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the name of your podcast. So I was, uh, I was, I knew it would be coming, but I thought, yeah, let me answer that honestly. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I wanted to say thank you so much for writing The Good Ally, your book that debuted last year. Um, I listened to the audio book and then I also bought the book afterwards subsequently because I sometimes like to refer back to it when certain situations arise and there's things that you wrote that just really resonated with me within the book. So I like to have it um, on my Kindle to hand. Um, and it... <laughs> It seems like quite an obvious question, but who did you have in mind as the audience when writing this? And were there any considerations for people of colour when you were when you were writing the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm quite explicit in the beginning by saying this. I'm writing this for people who are racialized as white and assumed to be white, even if they have a different um, racial identity. Um, but also people who want to interrogate their own anti-blackness. And that can be anyone, that could be any other person of colour, that could be anybody who is black, anybody who's mixed black. Like, if you're wanting to do that inquiry for yourself, then, 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 then it's an opportunity. But also I knew they'd kind of be the secondary audience of, you know, people like us people of color that are navigating this landscape of dealing with you know the ferocity of everyday racism and how wounding it is and helping us piece together things that or give us language for things that we didn't know before and help us process and understand my goodness that's what was going on so I always knew there would be this secondary audience because before I wrote the book I did consultancy I did training on the subject um I did I developed an online course. So I had a lot of data and information about who, who is coming to this content and for what purpose. So I, I, I kind of put warnings throughout the book, like, you know, black folk, folk of color, I see you. I know you're here as well. Please take care of yourself because actually some of this is really triggering and it might trigger trauma. And, you know, it's difficult for me to be with um, and it might be for you as well. So pace yourself. Um, and so for those people of colour and other black folk who are reading it to both better understand and, and navigate what's going on, you know, navigate racism and also, you know, want to look in the mirror and look at how, how do I, what's my role in this? How, you know, where do I perpetuate anti-blackness? Where do I experience racism and, and, you know, understanding more so that we can all transform and heal? Um, there's there's pieces in there as well for us but I'm very clear with like be careful and you're in control of your mental health and you know whether you have the capacity to engage with this or not because it's triggering as hell I know it I wrote it I had to research the stuff mm. painful yeah yeah absolutely I can only imagine and um listen I listened to your last episode of your podcast where you you talked about that process of having to relive all of that trauma and stuff and I can't even imagine what it's like to have written that and then have to promote it and like go Ugh. through <laughs> the rigmaroles of uh, <laughs> talking about it again and again which yeah. you know it's double-edged sword at the end of the day isn't it where you obviously want yeah it is and you know I I when I accepted you know I obviously made a conscious decision to write the book mm. and writing the book and not really knowing whether you're going to get a deal or not, or not really knowing if it's going to go anywhere. It's very different to when you've got a publishing deal with a deadline and when you know it's going to be out in the world for as long as my publisher chooses to produce it. So forever. 
Um, and that, with that comes enormous responsibility about, you know, the language that you're using and, and, you know, how this will inform ideas and people's understanding of racism and also, you know, things evolve and shift and move. And, and so you're trying to write something that will also be timeless as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a huge responsibility that comes with that. And um, that was something I really had to consider with when I got I got offered two publishing deals and I was talking them through with my husband and like part of that process in me accepting the deals was my profile will be raised as a result of this and that means I'm going to get the rough with the smooth including threats to life and mm. do I have the capacity to take this on am I strong enough am I supported enough those are things I had to consider and probably not so much. I did to an extent, but not so much um, about, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, I'm poking around in trauma wounds mm. more than I would like to be. And, you know, there, there is a lack of understanding from people in the publishing industry who obviously want to promote your book so it will sell. It becomes more of a commercial product and they forget that there is a human being behind mm. it um, who is front and centre of sometimes some very, very... Um, difficult environments that are uh, emotionally violent so it, mm. it's all of that as well as I feel like I I felt compelled and it was a, a it was a spiritual and ancestral pull for me to serve something greater than me so I was like there's it's no negotiation I have to do it mm. and so that comes with prop that comes with the responsibility that comes with you know it's the it's the proudest piece of work I've ever put out there and mm. I'm so proud of it and I and I see the power that it has and how it's transforming and helping people so there's absolutely no regret it, it mm. just comes with all of this you know we're not black and white are we mm. <laughs> so no pun intended it, it comes with other other things as well that you kind of have to hold the tension with yeah and I yeah I really want to thank you as well because you do mention the anti-east and southeast asian racism that has mm. been on the rise in UK of course historically there has been racism against our communities but your book also highlights those recent incidents yeah. and I think it's so important that you know for this book to have recognized that racism faces all communities of color mm. I think has been really incredible and um, it made me feel seen and made me feel included in that discourse because yeah. I don't know about you Viv about reading the book in the positionality of someone who is identified as East or Southeast Asian because um, I was interrogated on being part of that system that perpetuates anti-blackness and of course recognizing the parts I've played in that and also recognizing my privilege as well as the fact that I do suffer some forms of racism too. For example, the other day I went to the estate agent to collect some keys because I very stupidly locked myself out of the house and I walked in and I just said, I don't have my keys, I, I locked myself. And then he said, do you have any ID? And I just went, oh, no, no, I'm really sorry. I'm very apologetic. And he just gave them to me. And with no ID, he was just like, that's fine. And I was just like, that's really weird. Like, why didn't he question me? And I realized that there's a certain privilege in the fact that he didn't question me because I would imagine if he met someone who was racialized as black, he probably might have questioned them. And that's a fact that does happen. And mm. I realized that's a privilege that I had and I took advantage of it. And uh, I didn't call him out. I didn't say, you should ID me. You know, it doesn't matter what you think of me. Mm. I think often Asian women can be infantilized like that 
on the binary with, uh, say, black children who often adult adultification of black children, I should say, is that we have the other side of it where yes. we're infantilized. So it's a different dynamic. And I thought it was really interesting approaching the book in a way really made me examine how where I stand in the world, basically. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, it, I, I agree and resonate with all of that. And I think when I've thought about my own anti-racism journey, we have lent on the black community, black educators, um, anti-racist educators to inform our experience, even though they're, they're different, there's a lot of commonalities. Um, and it's, it's really interesting how, you know, Amy mentioned how we felt so seen after seeing that you mentioned about anti-Asian um, hate within your book. Um, and how there's a complete lack of um, discourse or there, there, there was prior to 2020 for any type of um, exposure or acknowledgement to racism towards East and Southeast Asian people. And like, I really had to, um, I had to yeah, basically lean on the black community and learn from the black community to mm. figure out my own identity. Um, and then it was only after that I've started thinking about why, why are there no books that uh, focus on uh, specifically anti-Asian hate um, or authors within the UK who, um, who talk about this kind of stuff. Um, so mm. it, it is, um, yeah, it is just, I want to say thank you again for that because it's, um, a strange one to navigate where we're addressing our own anti-blackness, our own internalized racism, whilst also trying to create space for ourselves as well within this yes. racial discourse. And also be be heard about your social persecution, be heard and believed about the very real reality of your social persecution as well. I remember around that time, I mean, it, there were several things that, that happened and the two standout moments, I remember I'd shared on my Instagram um, about when when we received the data around the 300% incre increase in um, anti-Asian hate crime and racism. And I remember I was, I, was, I was doing a post specifically about that and somebody commented and they said, you know, it's important that, that, that we address racism. This is a black person and there was a black woman. She said, it's important that we address racism. She said, well, I can't help but feel that it's always black people who are, who are shouldering it for everyone else. And I said, look, nobody's telling you just because you're black that you need to be in an educator role um, and you're allowed to speak your truth. And also it's important for me in this moment to acknowledge the rise in anti-Asian hate crime. Like all of, this, all of these things are true at once. So she was acknowledging that, that there is a disproportionate labor that seems to be done by black people to address systemic racism. And then I was in a, another dialogue um, with an Asian American man and, and he was just, he was just, we were just having an open sharing session and he was being very honest and vulnerable as we all were. And he said, I, you know, I'm realizing now because we were in um, a BIPOC space, so black indigenous people of color centering space. And he said, I realized that up until recently, I didn't even identify or call myself a person of color. But yet I'm not white. And so there was there was, this, you know, we're all unpacking our identity and all of the things that we've done to survive living in a racist system. And also looking in the mirror at how we have also perpetuated or maintained um, anti-blackness and like mm. all of it is true at once. And like, yeah, you know, I talk about anti-racism as collective healing and part of the healing process is 
you know, tending to your wounds, you know, and, and also working on the pieces where we consciously or subconsciously um, benefit from proximity to white supremacy mm. and also mm. when we are persecuted by it. Um, mm. That's the work. So, yeah, it's all yeah. of it. <laughs> it's all of it. It's not simple. This this work is not simple. And you know, there's I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what I know, which isn't isn't very much at all. Um, you know, and just hearing you you um regale those experiences with them. The Asian American man that you spoke with, I literally had the same conversation with my boyfriend the other day. Cause I was oh, like, yeah. you know, I talk about being a person of color. And I, I I say that as a collective, if I'm with other people of color or people who are non-white, and I and I use that in a very specific way, in that people we are categorized as non-white, yes. even though I hate that term, but um I'll collectively talk about me being a person of color in front of other people, but then I still find that I don't really, it doesn't quite succinctly ca- encapsulate. land, yeah. Me. No, yeah, it's, it's a because I do have a proximity to whiteness. If we're speaking about colorism, et cetera. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, and it's complicated. It's really not simple. <laughs> it's complicated. And, 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 you know, one of the, one of the, you know, out of the, 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 the trauma of, summer 2020 when George Floyd was murdered and you know these conversations about racism are front and center across the globe in a way I've never seen them before and other civil rights activists and activists haven't and um I was catching up with my cousin uh through man through marriage and her heritage is um from she's Filipino uh British Filipino and so she said the same thing she said I don't I haven't I haven't described myself as a person of color. So I said, so how do you describe yourself? And she said, I guess I would use the term yellow. Mm. And so that was, and so we were just, you know, we're figuring out, we're figuring out our identities and where we're located um, and the roles we have within, you know, tackling a racist system and, and healing and, you know, looking out for one another and doing better. Definitely feel these terms are always double-edged swords because the term EC has brought a lot of people together, East and Southeast Asian, and it helps us to recognize our overlapping issues and our overlapping joys. We're also a joyful community. We're not all about our trauma, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that there isn't inter-community tension. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't Mm -hmm. disagree with each other. That doesn't erase a history of a lot of struggles that they have faced with each other. And a lot of the time people don't want to be part of that category because they want to say, no, I am distinct. I am this person, but it's, it's just yes. never perfect. You'll never find a perfect term because it is just a construct and it will never envelop the full capacity of who you are. Yeah. And I think if we just hold that in mind and, and respect and understand that people will will want to identify and find commonality in different ways, like I'm okay with that. And um but it, it does make yeah, it does when you when you when you end up having to group people because you want to do something that doesn't center whiteness, it's, it's like, what do we call ourselves? And it's all, you know, it's a conversation around baming, which I absolutely hate (laughs) BAME and all of that. Um, Yeah. It's, it's complicated, but I think in, it's also simple. Just let people identify in the way that they, they choose and have respect for that. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. exactly um I, I definitely feel like you know 2020 was the year of calling people out including our own sometimes and like yeah. I think we have definitely been on that journey in terms of like what systemic change does that actually do and how sustainable is that and I think that's why you know you mentioned about the work that you do and having to really sustain it and I think that's why with Be Seen and how we formed as a collective you know it came from a place of real anger and real upset you know Mm. like it was just complete injustice in seeing how all these attacks in the media were perpetuating this idea that we were responsible for COVID but um we almost pivoted that and then we were like okay we want to serve our community we actually want to empower and educate um within our own community because and and I say community with quotation marks because we didn't really have one we we had to rely on social media a lot for the work that we do and the communities have been siloed um within the UK um up until really 2020 um from my knowledge anyway I felt completely like distance from my identity from Mm -hmm. anyone who resembled me at all um and like yeah we we position joy as the forefront of what we do because that's the only way really that we can sustain it because we're volunteers in this and it's it's complete it's so difficult to be able to call out people whether within your community or or otherwise um institutions without feeling completely hopeless and burnt out from it (laughs) yeah yeah and that's the reality like not everybody is able willing or ready to transform Mm. Mm. and this this weaponization of whiteness is something that we don't just read the theory of and it's something that a lot of us at BC have experienced personally I know that our audience are predominantly East and Southeast Asian people who unfortunately will recognize more overt forms of racism though yes. they may not always recognize you know the more covert forms it might sound like asking a seemingly innocent question like but where are you from or being yeah. excluded from a group being undermined and it can happen in friendships or workplace and I remember this moment um, during an advocacy workshop that we were holding for an organization Um, an auntie stood up she had remained I think largely silent throughout but she stood up at the end and she said thank you for telling me about microaggressions because now I have a name for the behavior which has really troubled me before but I didn't know how to define it so in terms of the this idea of covert racism these more subtle forms why do you think it's so dangerous I think it's, I mean, there is so much evidence and statistics. So I I talk about racial microaggressions specifically, and the evidence that I've drawn upon was was mostly done within African-Americans and the black community. And there was so much research and studies that show um, exposure to regular racial stress, like racial microaggressions show up in the body as trauma. There's been studies on the brain that showed um, African-Americans who are exposed to microaggressions, racial microaggressions on a regular basis. Um, The brain pattern is showing in the same way as a war veteran who served and has got PTSD. Um, And so for me, what what is even more sobering than that is PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. And Mm. that generally suggests that something has happened and it's in the past, it's not still happening, but we're still Mm. exposed to racism by simply just going out and doing our shop or simply Mm. just going out in the street. And so we're still exposed to persistent exposure to to trauma 
um, with no opportunity to heal. And um, it, it, it is so corrosive on mental health, on physical health. Trauma affects every single system in your body. Mm -hmm. um, gastrointestinal, infertility, every single system in your body mm -hmm. um, trauma affects nervous system massively, obviously. Um, and so for me, like we have to, we have to understand that we're dealing with trauma and persistent ongoing trauma when your body does not have a chance to recover. No wonder we see, you know, with so many activists, you know, some of that is because some of them have lost their life through violence, but bell hooks, renal failure, it affects every single system in the body like that. It is, you know, there's no studies that say those two things are linked, but it, it's no, I don't believe it's a coincidence that we have these such we have mortality rates that are, are too young for people who are front and center of this work. Um, um, and also there's so many studies that show uh, black women in particular are more susceptible to depression or anxiety. And those studies again, link to the exposure to racism and social suffering as a, as a leading contributor. Um, and then more recently, um, studies that show black women are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth. And I'm mm. currently involved in a human rights panel that is investigating why that's happening so it's enormous and you know it's it's these everyday occurrences that build up to the build up to this kind of weathering and this trauma it's the everyday inquiries around where you're from when you're in your in your country speaking English like the fact I speak English <laughs> is because you know we were, we were, you know, people invaded where we were from originally. That's why I speak English. But, you know, now, now I'm claiming this is my own. I am English. I'm British. Mm. Um, and, you know, the mocking of accents, um, the lack of eye contact, the social exclusion, um, the, the lack of career progression and the disproportionate amount of people who are overqualified and in a, and a lower ranking roles and are not being promoted disproportionate sanctions at tribunal there is you know all of these things are, are, are caused by microaggressions and assumptions that we make about each other and the stereotypes that we hold about each other and our place in the world and they are so corrosive um, mm -hmm. so that's why I talk about them because microaggressions can be caused by everyday well-meaning well people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah can. yeah oh my gosh um so true like I was thinking about um your book which there was a part in it that really resonated with me about your experience with a which I'm not going to ask you about because that's personal but uh with a white woman and you being the subservient friend and them being the kind of like the white savior dynamic and how um that prompted me to finally end this very long friendship because it was it it that short paragraph completely encapsulated my whole experience and to have you know you as a complete stranger who knows nothing about me write my my ex experience to a t you know explain that dynamic was just so powerful and like you said like it has had and is still having really impactful um ways in like my mental health mm -hmm. my physical health you know it's still things I'm going through I'm, I'm talking about it with my therapist a lot um 
I don't know whether you have any like thoughts or uh, for anyone listening who may be in a similar situation who who may not even realize that they might be in a dynamic where mm. they're with particularly I'm thinking about particularly white women friendships yes. or white women dynamics um and what are like the signs that we may be able to look out for I mean so the reason and thank you for res- um, respecting not um you know, not going into the detail about what happened. I, I touch upon it in my book, but I don't go into yeah. detail because I choose not to. But the reason why I make reference to it is because my experience with um, uh, that white friend in particular is not unique. Like you, you even said, you, we're complete strangers. I don't know your story. But what I was, what I was extrapolating from that, my experience were the key themes around it. You know, highlighting, not highlighting racism because you ultimately do not feel safe. You know that by highlighting their racism, you're probably going to experience more racism or you've heard them say racist things about another group of people. Oh, but you're all right. You're not like them. And you kind of you hear all those kinds of things and you're disorientated, discombobulated and you don't quite know what to do about it or you challenge it. Um, and then you're demonized and so you're like right I can't talk to them about race and so you see there's always signs and it it could be it could be as obvious as those sorts of things or it could be just if we strip it back to just human behavior just disrespect Mm. a friend Mm. saying a friend saying that you ring a ringing a friend them saying they're going to call you back and they consistently don't call you back months later you still haven't heard from them you send uh, birthday gifts or and you don't get thank you. So just little things like that that are persistently happening um, where you're you're not being treated with with respect and dignity. Um, and so you then have to ask for why am I tolerating that? Mm. What's the dynamic in our relationship where I can't give them feedback on those kind of everyday things? Like, why am I frightened? Why am I? Sh- there should not be any relationship any intimate relationship you have with somebody where you are fearful, where you are frightened and where you do not feel like you can be your whole self. Mm. That is a red flag. Mm-hmm. And I say this as somebody who also recognized that sometimes we go into these, what I call in the, what we call in the therapeutic world, these um, adaptive behaviors in order to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe. Um, and so there's no blame there. There's, there's nothing but understanding and compassion because I've been there and sometimes I still default back to that because I'm going, I, I feel unsafe. Um, but ultimately you should never feel fearful, unsafe or that you can't just give feedback to someone that you love and say, you know, when you do this, it hurts me or it doesn't feel good. Or can we have a chat about something that's been happening a while, for a while now that's been on my heart? And you have a chat about something and they shut it down. They don't want to hear. They demonize you. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you love and care about somebody, I'm not saying that it's easy receiving feedback when we hurt someone. It isn't. But you would, you know, most people will want to repair and do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't feel safe and you don't feel like you can be yourself, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sometimes see it as like when someone raises something with me and I get that initial defensiveness and I think we all get it because we're human you know you want to defend yourself because you have an idea of um, 
you that doesn't do wrong and I always see it as a system override like I have to override that feeling yeah. <laughs> and then be like I have to be humble I have to understand that I hurt mm. someone or I did wrong and it's so hard to do but you know I feel like the more you train it or the more you can look at it objectively and recognize that feeling rising the quicker you can like end that defensive period you know not make it too long make it short uh, it doesn't always work and i i know this because i have a four-year-old child who is so defensive like <laughs> anything to her have to be so gentle and i'm like whoa this is this is hard but you know you have to have the patience of a saint really but it yeah can, you know, it can work and i often <laughs> say um i often say that i i i i speak about white supremacy specifically as being really immature like if we dissect the concept of some so some, some jackass somewhere decided oh well white people are more superior because of their color of their skin because i decided mm -hmm. um and and africans are the least superior and base these on no science base these ideas on people and communities of people that they'd never even met and then it was backed up by law, embedded in law, justified violence and, you know, centuries and centuries of human genocide. But ultimately, if we take the idea of what it means, it's very infantile. So when mm. when we highlight racism, particularly with white women who also have been infantilized to be mm -hmm. these damsels in distress who need to be protected by men under mm -hmm. patriarchy, you then get these really childlike responses um, where they have a tantrum and completely mm -hmm. shut down and that's one of the reasons why there's a whole chapter in my book about black women and white women specifically because there's a very specific piece of history um certainly related to transatlantic slave trade and 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 colonization about the role that that white women had under patriarchy they were oppressed they didn't have access to land money their wealth was through whoever they married um, they couldn't work and so they were also experiencing a massive amount of social persecution from mm. white men. And so I, I have this saying I often refer to, hurt people hurt people. And what they did have access to and what they did have control over were black bodies. Um, enslaved people were often a dowry for them or their access to property or their access to wealth or land. And they had full rights of control over enslaved people, including children. And I tell you, when I was doing research uh, for before the book um, uh, for the course that I developed in back in 2018, the violence that was inflicted on black men, women and children by white women is insurmountable. And so part of the work around, you know, maintaining and sustaining relationships, particularly with white women, is recognizing the power they had over us. And many still do, because white women are automatically trusted. A white woman can pick up the phone to the police and say they're being harassed by a black man, and the police will come and believe every word they're saying. We saw that with Amy Cooper. And I think, you know, given the context of the history of white women, it's it still amazes me that, um, and it shouldn't, but it does, because I've experienced it myself, liberal, progressive white women can be the most dangerous, the most dangerous, um, in my experience. Um, you know, the, the article that I wrote was in particular about friends that fit that category. Um, yes. 
And I had to like ruminate over things that they that didn't sit well with me for years. And I didn't realize it was racism until I soundboarded it with some really close friends, friends from Be Seen. Um, and it's just, I, I just feel like it is just like wild to me that people see racist people as bad. Mm. The, the good, bad binary comes back into it again. And, and like how that narrative just needs to just go away. It's just, away. It, again, it's that infantile, it's it's the immaturity mm. around it. And, and also, you know, it's very convenient because it serves people to think, well, it, racists are just those overt people over there who mm-hmm. commit acts of hate and I'm not that so that's it shut the conversation down but mm. what I one of the ways I respond to that is let 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 me remind everybody that the uh, murder Stephen Lawrence's murderers also maintained that they weren't racist so there's no credibility in that there, there's there's no credibility in defending your position and saying you're not racist if somebody who is uh, socially persecuted because of the color of their skin has told you that you are doing something racist um believe them and adapt and do better like I would rather I I I will I will never forget a time where I um I was running a diversity workshop I think it was years ago so before anti-racism I was doing more more of the sanitized version of it and um and I always, I always do a section on uh, LGBTQ inclusion. I always make sure I bring somebody from that community to interview and speak about their experience because it's not mine. Um, and uh, I've got a, a, a bank of lots of great people who I usually call upon and, and none of them were available, which is rare. And so I put a, a shout out publicly to see if anybody who would like to support. And somebody stepped forward and I saw a profile picture of them and I made an assumption um that they were uh, a lesbian couple and I said something like I'd really love to meet you and your wife or something like that and they came back and they were absolutely furious and they said you do better you do good to not um assume somebody's gender and you should know better given your role and I misgendered them they'd just gone through transgender reassignment and I assumed there are I will never mm. do that again and and I because they gave me that feedback they could have not given me feedback they could have just ignored me um but they gave me that feedback and I as a result of that I'm much more mindful now um and I learn and I and I kept like I care about people Mm -hmm. (laughs) I care about people Mm -hmm. um so if I if I'm aware if somebody makes me aware of something it's you know because we do and say things and we don't realize like we're human like I get Mm -hmm. that this isn't about being perfect and and never saying or doing something that's problematic like we're all going to do that I do it Mm -hmm. but if somebody has the courage to bring that to your attention somebody who is regularly socially persecuted has the courage to bring to your attention that something you are doing or saying is is hurting them offensive to them or whatever it is I genuinely don't understand as a fellow human being why you wouldn't want to stop hurting someone when you're mm-hmm. aware of it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the essence. Yeah. And I'm not saying I didn't have a shame spiral and, and I felt embarrassed and all of, I'm not saying any of that stuff didn't happen because it did, but none of that was their issue. Let me go and deal with that away somewhere else with mm-hmm. people who can support me or my therapist or whatever. Mm-hmm. And let me just tend to the, the take responsibility for the harm, whether mm-hmm. I intended to or not. 
Mm. And yeah. having that courage is definitely something I wish I could work on because there's so many times when I've looked into the past and thought, oh, I wish I could raise something or said something at the time. But yeah, it's just so difficult. And it's a case by case basis. You know, we sometimes have to forgive ourselves when we can't yeah. quite do it at the time. Absolutely. And, and we will never always get it right. Like mm. we need to stop trying to seek perfection like that. It's not human. And but I think what what the difference is, and certainly what I'm calling for in in my request for people to be anti-racist is the humility, is the accountability, is the acknowledgement. Um, even if, even if like I give feedback on racism and someone's like, you know what, I'm having a bad day, I'm finding it hard to hear you. Can we pause and come back to this? Like that would be acceptable to me because it's honest and integrity rather than I'm not racist and you're oversensitive and you're misunderstanding me and mm -hmm. you're aggressive and no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just, Just no. no. Just no. <laughs> no. Like I'm tired. I'm tired. Yeah. I like we we should be doing that. You know, our children are watching. They're watching adults not take responsibility for their behaviour and it's not great. It's mm. harmful. Mm. And I think um, there's another aspect of racism, I think, within friendships from people who are also from minoritized groups, which yeah. I've personally experienced as well. I, um, I had a friend who was mixed ethnicity, Southeast Asian and South American. And I remember, you know, there were clues along the way. There were red flags. But I remember he made a comment about something objectifying me, very fetishizing, you know, saying, mm. oh, I bet Amy would like that or something that made me very uncomfortable. And it adds another layer of complexity because it really can cause you to question yourself or do a double take because initially you would give them the benefit of the doubt, yeah. right? You would think, you know, you understand what it's like to be racially profiled, to be stereotyped, but there's a different power dynamic going on that I can't quite unpick yet. But yeah, you know, we know that typically East and Southeast Asian women are hypersexualized. There's that fetishization mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, he he's a man and so he obviously would have suffered some form of a racial microaggression or harassment before but not understanding also that um that gender dynamic as well it's so troubling and yeah, yeah how do you think we can better insulate ourselves from those kinds of friendships i mean my honest answer is i find and I don't always use race, I don't always use the term racism because so many people don't understand what racism is. And if we look at racism in its, in its, in its original inception, um, it's very much rooted in a power of a dominant group of people. So interculturally, we don't have that same systemic power. So whilst it, we experience it the same, I find it more useful to use like race hate or intercultural hate because I'm, 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 I'm holding in mind that what's happening in between us is as a consequence of white supremacy. Mm, yeah. um, and if I, if I forget that all of that's happening between us is not as a consequence of white supremacy, it can be mm. really destabilizing and, and disorientating. So that's why I kind of hold that in mind um, because mm. it is a consequence of that. Mm -hmm. But I find, 
I find it the hardest. I'll be really honest. It hurts more than receiving this racism from someone's white because like there's part of what you said, you hold a higher mm -hmm. expectation or you hold a different expectation because we also experience what it's like to be persecuted because of our identity. And so you're like, how can you, how can you, how, how have you missed the memo? Like you've experienced this, this mm. bullshit from whiteness mm. and you're doing it to me like come on um but I also understand it's happening as a consequence of white supremacy I'm not excusing it so it's it's harder to address but I think um one thing I find really useful is is checking in with myself am I safe do I have the capacity to engage with this in this moment or is this something I can come back to retrospectively? Do they have the capacity to get, where are they on, where are they on their journey, on their healing journey, on their journey, their anti-racist journey, or where's their level of consciousness? Like, that's probably a more appropriate word. Like, where's their consciousness on this? Um, and if it's not present, then I, I kind of think about it in terms of the same way I would with a white person. Like, is this relationship worth the risk of me receiving further harm? And then I need to make some decisions about the relationships that serve me. Um, and if it is worth the risk, then it's deciding, right, I'm too activated to engage with this now. It's going to be too traumatizing. So I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to, I'm going to send an email or I'm going to send a text. Let's, let's meet up in person. There's been a few things that have been happening over the past few weeks, month. I'd really love to sit down and chat with you. It's much easier to do things in person where possible. Um, and sometimes doing it when we're less activated can lead to a more productive conversation. And also sometimes it's not. Sometimes you get a volatile and violent response um, that's really wounding. So you have to decide, is it worth it? Am I safe? Do I have the capacity? And if I do, is it, shall I do it now or can I do it later? Like we don't have to address every single incident of racism that we experience in the moment. Like unleash yourself from that burden. It, mm. It's going to make us unwell. We don't have to. We can come back to things later when we're more resourced or when we've worked through some stuff in therapy or have had more time to process. And if you're giving feedback on somebody who who you know this intercultural hate, shall we call it, on 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 this hate, on this on this violence, this kind of intercultural violence and harm, and you're giving feedback, and they're still continuing to hurt you then you need to hold a boundary. Mm -hmm. I can, you are hurting me, please stop. If you will not stop, our relationship ends there. I've had a, you know, I've loved some of the time we spent to, with one another. I wish you well and I'm done. Yeah, that's totally right. And I did, I said, thank you. You sparked joy once, but now I'm putting you away as our, <laughs> our good friend Mary Kondo um, advises us to do more of clothes, but I think you can apply that to other aspects of your life. And um yeah, I was thinking also about, say, racism in the workplace too, because I remember during a chit chat part of a meeting, you know, you meet up and you say, hi, how are you doing? What have you been up to? And this was online. This was at a very old workplace of mine. And um, that 
a person, uh, Rachel Eisen's White, said that they went out last night and they got sick because they were having a dirty Chinese. Oh. And what they meant was a takeaway, um, which we know comes from the idea that food from East or Southeast Asia is apparently substandard, unhygienic, which comes, let's name it. It comes from the racist idea. Yep, the racist mm -hmm. idea that the food is unhygienic, which isn't a million miles away from the idea that apparently people racialized as East or Southeast Asian are dirty themselves and carry viruses, which of course has led mm -hmm. to the uptick in racism seen a threefold uptick, in fact, um, in racism against East and Southeast Asian people. So I found it really hard to call it out there and then because I didn't know if I was potentially jeopardizing my role. I had no idea in that moment who was my ally. Would I be able to speak up without causing more harm? Yeah. What do you think about the dynamics of workplace racism? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I did an Instagram post today about something called institutional trauma, also known as institutional betrayal. And that happens a lot in the workplace. It happens a lot in communicate in any community where we are dependent on that community for support or uh, safety. So work, we rely on for financial safety. Family, we rely on for community. Places of worship, like anything where you're, you're, you rely on that place for support. So um, I'll use the workplace specifically, but it's when you, when you experience an incident of I'll use racism, but it can be any trauma at that in within that community. And then you then, or it happens within that community. And then you then go to somebody in a position of power at that workplace to say, this has happened to me. I need help. And then you, and then you receive poor action or inaction. And that could be minimizing the experience, not investigating the experience, ignoring you, silence. Um, insensitive like multiple ways we've all been in the workplace and not had racism dealt with efficiently and mm. that the not have once you highlight an incident of trauma or racism and then not have that dealt with seriously or in any kind of way that causes more trauma than the original incident mm -hmm. so it, it it's rife um, and it is hard but I think it goes back to the same thing. Like, firstly, your well-being is is most important. Do you have the capacity to engage? If not, might you be able to go back to it retrospectively? If you don't feel safe enough to do it in person, can you write it in an email? Um, who is your support network? Like, sometimes they're not immediately there, but there might be somebody in the organisation who you can go to retrospectively and just offload and say, "This is what happened. Have that experience validated. Get there." like the physical support and being heard and seen and believed. And then you might know people that are in this work or have been a great support or a mentor, and you can go with them to, you know, somebody in a position of power. If you go with two of you, you're more likely, to, you're more, you're less likely to be scapegoated as a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. Get that's why that's where the allies or the mentor is really important. If two of you go, and also get your receipts. Like if this is something that's ongoing, write it down, write your notes, the date, the time, what happened, keep it factual. Mm. Um, sometimes people record incidents, like get your receipts as well, because they can help and say, look, hold on, this isn't a one-off incident. It's been going on for so long and, it, and I've had enough. Or sometimes if it is a one-off incident, like that's enough. We don't have to build up. We don't have to wait until things build up to address it. But you know, assessing your well-being, 
um, getting their experience validated first, mm-hmm. getting support, going with somebody else um, for moral support to, to mm-hmm. highlight it and making sure that they follow up because they, that your employer has a duty of care mm-hmm. um, to provide a safe and healthy working environment for you under the Health and Safety Act. Um, so they have a duty of care. I mean, there's other acts as well, but that's a basic one. Um, mm. Yeah. I should write that down, actually, the Health and Safety Act and make yeah. sure tucked away, ready, ready mm. to go. <laughs> yeah, they should be safeguarded. Like if we, if we start to think about, if more of us start to understand that experiencing racism is trauma, this should be treated um, as a public health issue. And employers yeah. should be safeguarding the well-being of their staff. And if they're not taking uh, accounts of racism seriously, then they're not safeguarding. They're not safeguarding all of their staff. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel so sad for past Viv, like where I I have been. I didn't notice the signs of being passed up for um, promotions. I didn't pass my probation during a time when I told them my my dad was basically dying in oh, hospital. And like they said, oh, you didn't pass your probation the past six months because you've been away with your, you know, working from home or whatever. And then I see all my white counterparts being um, promoted and Mm. passing their probations. And now I can absolutely label that as racism, as institutional betrayal, like you Mm -hmm. said. It's so clear to me now, but I think there must be so many people who are in the thick of it, who don't even realize they're going through it and that they are part of this statistic and this phenomena that is happening globally. And it it makes me really sad that, Mm. you know, and that there was never any justice to that. It just happened. And then, you know, now I'm thankfully work for myself where I can create the people around me and really interrogate people who I interview and employ. Um, But, you know, that's a very privileged position to be in and, you know, I could, I would struggle to go back into working in the corporate yes. world because of my past experiences, definitely. It's so traumatising. And, and you're right, there are a lot of people who are navigating really hostile terrain in the workplace. And the, the only reason I know about this so intricately and in detail is because, of course, I experienced that too. Mm. And it absolutely corroded my, my, my physical and mental health. Mm. Um, but, you know, what I will say to anyone who's listening and, and pennies are dropping around mistreatment in the workplace, not being treated with basic care and dignity. And rather than, you know, your, what your employer failed to do with you during that period was like, OK, it, I don't know whether there was uh, legitimate reasons for you not to have passed your, pro, your probationary period. I don't know that. But if there wasn't, they could have said, like, I'm noticing a drop off in your in your work output can we have a chat is everything is everything is do you need support Mm. are you okay that Mm -hmm. should be your first inquiry not punishment yeah that should be your first Mm. inquiry so if anyone's listening and the penny's kind of dropping about what they are being subjected to and tolerating like it's not your fault yeah and what's really interesting is you know when they would ask me whether I'm okay it's you want to put on like an air of professionalism and you want to bring your full self to work and you have this dynamic where you want to keep your job so sometimes you're just going to say I'm fine even though you're not and so but then that goes that goes back to you did that because you didn't feel safe to disclose Mm -hmm. the truth and so that Mm -hmm. means that employer has failed in creating an environment where there was psychological safety that's so true that's not on you yeah Yeah. and I really agree with you um saying you know creating a community around you a network of safety too because certainly since 
um, knowing the BC core team and knowing you all as individuals, I really feel it's safe and I know that I can go back to you and get support. And um, yeah, also you mentioning going with someone and having that validated by someone else so that you can go as a, like a team. That's something I've done as well. And it's really helped because you don't feel so alone in that situation. Yeah. And mm -hmm. yeah, mental health, such a priority. And I know that doing this work sustainably isn't easy. And even this conversation, it, you know, it's so hard to talk about these things. So I'm really grateful for your time and grateful for your knowledge and information that you've given. And through doing all of this, how do you find joy in your life? Ah, joy, um, most of the time uh, is quite easy for me to access because I'm cheeky and I'm playful. <laughs> um, I have a very cheeky cat. Um, I, you know, I, I paint, I'm going to do some painting tomorrow. I give myself, um, I paint pottery. I don't like, you know, I, I trace. <laughs> I'm not that good. All this gorgeous art and then the, the, the artist in the studio traces it for me. And I just, basically I'm colouring in with paint. But I, love it. <laughs> I find it so therapeutic. I and, and then I get blasted and I get my china, you know, my, my china plates out and like, here, look what I've done and show off to people <laughs> when they come around. Um, but I love painting. I really love to sing. Um, I, you know, my work is heavy, so I have regular rest days and recovery days. Mm. Um, uh, I love theatre. I love ballet. Um, uh, I just went to see Diversity in a show recently and Ballet Black. And I, yeah, I love things that I make sure I do things that nourish me and fill mm. my soul. And that includes being really mindful of the food I put in my body as well. Mm -hmm. um, making sure I have time to cook and prepare meals rather than just eat and rush on the go. Mm -hmm. um, giggling, belly laughing. I love that. I love that. So Nova, do you, do you like karaoke? Uh, no. <laughs> so I used to, I used to be a professional singer and I, I okay. can't bear it. I can't bear it. I, I can't bear it, but <laughs> Okay, so we, we at BC, none of us are professional singers, but we love karaoke. <laughs> I can't bear it. Like, literally, I'm sweating at the moment because I just... Um, just the thought of it. But I love an open mic night. I love an open mm. mic where people are just freestyling and just being themselves, imperfect, um, mm. like, poet, like, like poetry, all of that stuff. I love seeing people just in their element, unedited. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah 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 I totally agree we're we're hosting so this year it will be the second year of um east and southeast asian heritage month which we've nice. seen launched last year um and we got like over like nine thousand attendees all across the uk loads of different events were put on um it's really cool we had like um comedian phil wang do a set with us i ended up living my dream of um being a stand-up comic and sharing a stage with him um which is really cool um and like nice. this year we want to do some kind of like um just showcase talent like yeah. have a karaoke party so you're more than welcome to come I mean over. I'll come <laughs> but I'm not singing like I'm not singing <laughs> no it's so weird but if it was open mic I might sing but it was karaoke right. I can't I okay. can't do it as something happens to me <laughs> it's how okay it's how we position it then it's how we market it okay something happens but I yeah. love I love I love um watching um untapped talent and uh, yeah mm. I love that there's something very 
beautiful about watching people be their whole selves in whatever way they choose to express themselves through creativity is very magical to watch yeah Mm, I really I I do really agree with that um more of that this year more of that this year lovely and when is it it's going to be September yeah we'll be sure to send over some details um final surprise fun food question so this is something we ask all of our guests um are you team rice or noodles rice no hesitation there (laughs) please give us your reasons nova oh i love rice i love i mean i you know give me a fine egg noodle and i'll i'll eat i'll eat that um forever as well but rice (laughs) yeah always rice love rice in all of its forms (laughs) (laughs) we joke about uh we ask this question quite a lot and rice usually comes out on top and we joke that there's like a rice supremacy going on (laughs) community And how us noodle um, lovers are oppressed within this community. <laughs> yeah, I'm noodles and yeah, I feel I feel a little stab inside when I'm oh. a minority. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Nova. It's been such a just so insightful having you on. What an honor to have you on. Um, oh really really appreciate it um is there anything you want to sign off with anything else you want to say no just thank you for having me thank you for holding really beautiful space um thank you for showing up as you are and I guess the usual bump if people want to connect with me I mostly hang out on Instagram at no read official um I have a TED talk and a book called the good ally and a anti-racism course called becoming anti-racist with Nova Reed and um, that keeps people busy so there's a few things I do <laughs> yeah make you. sure you sign up and follow Nova because it's a wealth of learning that we could all do so thank you so much for your time my absolute pleasure thanks for having me Uh, if you haven't already in our episode show notes we have a few petitions that we would love for you to sign so please check these out um and you can also find be seen on instagram um we are at be seen with a dot a in between the a and the n and on twitter it's the same but with an underscore yep and please donate to our coffee if you can that's ko-fi.com forward slash be seen this was an episode of but where are you from a podcast by be seen Brent's east and southeast asian network i was your host amy fung and i was your host viv yao thank you bye thank you bye 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 bye